Section 2 of Social Life in England, 1750-1850, by F. J. Folks Jackson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Lecture 1. Life in the 18th Century, Illustrated by the Career of John Wesley, Part 2. For years he seems to have travelled constantly on horseback, but later in life he made use of a post-chaise, the distances he covered are almost incredible. Here is an extract from his journal dated August 7, 1759, when he was in his fifty-fourth year. After preaching at four because of the harvest, I took horse and rode easily to London. Indeed, I wanted a little rest, having rode in seven months about four and twenty hundred miles. As we have seen, Wesley often read as he rode, and this practice taught him the value of a slack rein. I asked myself, how is it no horse stumbles when I am reading? No account can possibly given but this, because I throw the reins on his back. I then set myself to observe, and I aver that in riding about an hundred thousand miles, I scarce remember any horse, except two that would fall head over heels anyway, to fall or to make a considerable stumble when I rode with a slack rein. To fancy, therefore, that a tight rein prevents stumbling is a capital blunder. I have repeated the trial more than most men in the kingdom can do. A slack rein will prevent stumbling if anything will, but in some horses nothing can. But all his rides were not so leisurely, and I will read you an account of a ride in Wales. He started from Shrewsbury at 4 a.m., and at two in the afternoon was forty-two or three miles off, preaching in the market-place at Clanadlois. He and his companions then rode to Fountainhead, where he hoped to lodge, but Mr. B., being unwilling, they remounted at seven p.m. and rode on to Ross Fair. They missed the track and found themselves at the edge of a bog, and had to be put on to the right road. Again they missed their way, it being half-past nine. They did not find Ross Fair till between eleven and twelve. When they were in bed, the ostler and a miner had a ride on their beasts, and in the morning Wesley found his mare bleeding like a pig in the stable with a wound behind. This was on July 24th. On the 27th he was at Pembroke. I rested that night, having not quite recovered my journey from Shrewsbury to Ross Fair. He was in his sixty-second year. The dangers of travel were considerable, and one of the most remarkable facts in regard to Wesley was that he was never molested by highwaymen, who literally swarmed in England throughout the eighteenth century. They were often in league with the postboys, many of whom were highwaymen themselves. When Wesley was seventy-six years of age, he writes, Just at this time there was a combination among many of the post-chaise drivers on the Bath Road, especially those that drove by night to deliver their passengers into each other's hands. One driver stopped at the spot they had appointed, where another waited to attack the chaise. In consequence of this, many were robbed, but I had a good protector still. I have travelled all roads by day or by night for these forty years, and never was interrupted yet. Four years later, in 1782, he writes, about one on Wednesday morning we were informed that three highwaymen were on the road, and had robbed all the coaches that had passed, some within an hour or two. 
I felt no uneasiness on this account, knowing that God would take care of us, and he did so, for before we came to the spot all the highwaymen were taken. I cannot but think it remarkable that Wesley was never molested, because especially in his early days of itinerancy everything was done to hinder his work, and his enemies were quite unscrupulous enough to set the highwaymen on him. Perhaps the highwaymen had their scruples. In the early days of Wesley's mission, the invasion of England by the forces of the young pretender took place. This was the period at which he and his followers suffered most from mob violence and also from charges of popery and disaffection. I will take the latter first, as there is hardly any feature in the eighteenth century so marked in England as the dread and horror with which the Roman Catholic religion was regarded. I remember a few years ago examining a number of cartoons and caricatures during the rebellion of 1745, and almost every one of them had to do with popery. To the English, the invasion of the country by Charles Edward was like the Spanish Armada, an attempt to impose the papal yoke on the land. In the trinity of the nation's enemies, the Pope stood first. From the Pope, the Devil, and the Pretender, good Lord, deliver us. It was hatred of Rome that completely blinded people's eyes to the romance of the young prince's enterprise, and to his undoubted claim to the throne. Neither the government nor the sovereign were popular, but it was no question of popularity where popery was concerned. The House of Hanover stood for Protestantism, and the nation rallied to its support. Even that rapacious and cynical infidel Frederick the Great of Prussia was the darling of England as the Protestant hero, and the Duke of Cumberland's cruelties were forgotten because he saved England from the Pope. Like Marlborough and Wellington, he was known as the Great Duke. No charge could be more effective against an opponent than that of Romanism, and many good men had to endure it. The great Bishop Butler was exposed to it for complaining in his visitation charge to the clergy of Durham of the disgraceful neglect into which they had allowed their fabrics to fall. The most deadly shaft leveled against John Wesley was Bishop Lavington of Exeter's book, the enthusiasm of the methodists and papists compared the visions the trances the ecstasies of the methodists reminded good protestants of such catholic mystics as saint teresa and saint john of the cross the reasonableness of protestantism whether anglican or nonconformist was contrasted with the excited and hysterical manifestation of religious fervor in popish countries and the fervor of the Wesleys and their followers was especially unpopular on this account. The furious hatred of anything approaching Romanism is the key to much of the thought and feeling of the age. But though undoubtedly an enthusiast, Wesley was far in advance of his age as regards toleration. He had, moreover, a curious and chivalrous regard for the memory of Mary Queen of Scots, and he considered Elizabeth, the virgin queen and Protestant champion, as little better than a royal criminal. He at least would never have said, as Puff says in the critic, hush, no scandal against Queen Elizabeth. On the contrary, he says in his journal, but what then was Queen Elizabeth? As just and merciful as Nero, and as good a Christian as Mohammed. Thus he wrote in 1768, and if he held such a view twenty-three years earlier, 
no wonder he was suspected of jacobitism and popery far more to his credit is the fact that he resolutely refused to indulge in violent abuse of the ancient church on the contrary he found so little true religion anywhere that wherever it was manifested he welcomed it charles wesley's son went over to the church of rome to the great grief of his parents and possibly to the scandal of methodism this is how john writes and his words are so remarkable that i quote them at some length he has not changed his religion he has changed his opinions and mode of worship but that is not religion he has suffered unspeakable loss because his new opinions are unfavorable to religion what then is religion it is happiness in god or in the knowledge and love of god it is faith working by love producing righteousness and peace and joy in the holy ghost in other words it is a heart and life devoted to god now either he has this religion or he has not if he has he will not finally perish notwithstanding the absurd unscriptural opinions he has embraced let him only have his right faith and he is quite safe he may indeed roll a few years in purging fire but he will surely go to heaven at last no wonder therefore considering the bigotry of his age that wesley was exposed to persecution by the mobs but his leniency towards romanism was not the only cause of this to-day however i wish to utilize the story of the attacks made on the methodists to show the state of the country mob law was powerful wherever population was dense towns were gradually growing up and the english system of legal machinery was devised rather for a rural population there was no police properly so called shakespeare's dogbury and verges would not have been caricatures in the eighteenth century wesley himself speaks of the watchmen as those poor fools the violence of the mob was a feature of the eighteenth century in england perhaps you may recollect hogarth's picture of the chairing of a member of parliament after an election the man laying about him with a flail the prize fights etc riots play an important part in the history of the time and the no popery riot in seventeen eighty when lord george gordon stirred up the fanaticism of the london mob is only one of many similar occurrences never did the brothers wesley john and charles show the courage of good breeding more conspicuously than when they faced an infuriated rabble and saved themselves and their followers by the dignity of their demeanour and the fearless mildness of their conduct amid scenes of tumult witness the affair at wensbury and walsall the mob dragged john wesley from one magistrate to another some tried to protect him but were overpowered to quote the journal to attempt speaking was vain for the noise on every side was like the roaring of the sea so they dragged me along till they came to the town where seeing the door of a large house open i attempted to go in but a man catching me by the hair pulled me back into the middle of the mob i continued speaking all the time to those within hearing feeling neither pain nor weariness i stood at the door of a shop and asked are you willing to hear me speak many cried out no no knock his brains out kill him at once etc in the meantime my strength and voice returned and i broke out aloud in prayer and now the man who just before headed the mob turned and said sir i will spend my life for you follow me and not one soul here shall touch a hair of your head 
throughout the riot wesley notices from first to last i heard none give me a reviling word or call me by any opprobrious name but the cry of one and all was the preacher the parson the minister a man rushed at him to strike him but paused and merely stroked his head saying why what soft hair he has in cornwall attempts were made to stop methodism by calling in the aid of the press gang thomas maxfield was caught and offered to the captain of a ship in mounts bay who refused to take him an attempt was actually made to press john wesley a clergyman dr borlase acting in his magisterial capacity to further this infamous project but a mr eustick who was charged with executing the warrant had the sense to see the indecency of arresting such a man to serve in the navy as a common seaman he conducted mr wesley to dr borlase's door and told him he had done his duty and that his prisoner was free to depart wesley's description of the event is characteristic mr eustick was visited by him in order to be taken to dr borlase's to be pressed into the army i went thither and asked is mr eustick here after some pause one said yes and he showed me into the parlour when he came down he said oh sir will you be so good as to go with me to the doctor's i answered sir i came for that purpose are you ready sir i answered yes sir i am not quite ready in a little time in a quarter of an hour i will call upon you in about three-quarters of an hour he came and finding that there was no remedy he called for his horse and put forward to dr borlase's house but he was in no haste so we were an hour and a quarter riding three or four measured miles as soon as he came into the yard he asked a servant is the doctor at home upon whose answering no sir he has gone to church he presently said well sir i have executed my commission i have done sir i have no more to say End of section two